0: Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that during the pandemic, we're just recording these shows in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, College of Atlantic is celebrating its 50th birthday. Founded following a conversation between two Bar Harbor High School classmates, a businessman and a Catholic priest, the school draws on long-standing liberal arts traditions to focus on human ecology, the relationship between humans and the world of which they are a part. I'm Ron Beard, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour in a conversation with Darren Collins, the president of College of Atlantic, also a graduate from the class of 1992. We'll talk about the college's history, how human ecology is learned and taught, and his observations about the qualities of its students and faculty along with the challenges and opportunities that might lie ahead. And before we start our conversation, I wish to disclose that I have a long connection to College of the Atlantic myself, as a parent of a graduate, as an adjunct faculty member, and as a member of the Board of Trustees. I count many graduates, staff, and faculty as dear friends and colleagues. So now, to our conversation with Darren Collins. Darren, um, welcome to Talk of the Towns, glad you could be with us today.
1: Thanks, Ron. In, in your disclosure, you know, you also should remind your listeners that you are my outdoor orientation program leader as well. I think that's, that's important. For that's people right. To know.
0: That was uh, a, a memorable trip around Mount Lizard Island by kayak, as I recall. It was by Great. kayak. Amazing. Amazing. Well, College Atlantic is a special place. Give us some background on yourself, um, what you did, um, not necessarily um, here at at the college as a student, but what did you do in your career before you became president?
1: Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I graduated from COA in 1992, and I was fortunate enough to have won a fellowship called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, and that brought me to South America. And I I worked on... um, I was looking at the impact of large-scale hydroelectric facilities on indigenous populations in Chile, Ecuador, Peru, and and Bolivia. I loved, loved my time there, and I spent another year in in South America. And um, then I went off to graduate school. I went to Tulane University, first for a master's degree in Latin American studies, and then I did... PhD there in in anthropology. Met my wife, Karen, at Tulane, and we lived in Guatemala for two years when I was doing my doctoral research. I was an ethnobotanist, Mm -hmm. so really interested in the relationship between people and plants. And we worked with a community of Mayan speakers in northern Guatemala. They're the Kekchi Maya. Mm -hmm. I loved, loved that experience there. And was fortunate enough to get a job um, coming out of graduate school at the World Wildlife Fund. So we lived in Washington, D.C. Um, I worked with WWF for for ten years. Spent a lot of time in the Amazon basin, but also out in the Russian Far East and and northeastern Mongolia. And then um, in I was probably 2010. As an alum of the college, I got an email like every other alum saying that the college was looking for its next president, and I kind of scratched my head a little bit, and I, I'd always remembered and kept in touch with colleagues and friends and former faculty members, um, and I said to myself, I I could do this and I, I really want I was I was ready for some change at, at WWF um, loved my time there but um, so I put in an application um, my wife <laughs> said but Darren you don't have any experience in college administration oh but go ahead you know be a dear and, and apply and um, you know lo and behold I, I got the job and so I um Karen and I and our two girls, Maggie and Molly, and dog Lucy moved up to, back to Mount Desert Island in July of 2011, and uh, so I'm in my 11th year now as, as president. It's right. been wonderful, really amazing.
0: Well, you heard me allude to the founding of the college by um, a couple of, of local folks. Um, tell us what you know about the history of, of College of Atlantic as it thinks about its 50th year.
1: Yeah. One could celebrate fifty at a number of different different points, but um, we chose to celebrate the fiftieth incoming class, which wasn't until 1972. Um, but there's you know at least three years of of prior work that went into the college, and it's so funny to be able to touch the origins of the college that you're still part of of now and admittedly there is a lot of myth mixed in with with history and there are people who know way more about the history than I do, but um, I am really passionate about the origins of the college and um, I kind of trace it back to, um, you know, really to the 1850s in in a way because that's when, you know, the Hudson River School of, of Painters really were up here in the 1830s, 1840s and 1850s drawing attention to this place and that attention would then bring the rockefellers and everyone else up here and created just a really remarkable little community on on the coast of Maine. And um, then I think back to the, you know, the fire of 1947 in October and Um, how after two world wars, the Great Depression, and that fire really was a shock to the system of this this community. And the college was born kind of in the aftermath of that. Um, Les Brewer, who was the the local businessman you referred to, um, was the de facto mayor of, of this town. We don't have a mayor here, of course, but you know, legend has it, if you wanted anything done, you called Les and got his approval, or at least his his thoughts on the matter. And Les and his friend Jim Gower, who um, were both football teammates on the local football team, and and Jim went off, um, came back a priest, and was a, a priest at at Holy Redeemer here. And um, so Les was the one that said, we need to build an, an institution of education of higher ed here to help revitalize the community. Um, there's nothing like a college to give a town or a community new new legs. And when he ran into Father Jim, Father Jim said, that's great. Uh, I, I, I love that idea, but, you know, I've buried... Way too many boys coming back from Vietnam. The world seems to be coming apart at the seams. This was 1968 when they ran into each other and Martin Luther King was assassinated. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr., sorry, Sr. assassinated. Um, The Cuyahoga River, you know, catching on fire. Everything seemed to be coming apart at the seams. And so Father Jim said, if we're going to build a college, we're also going to build it dedicated to kind of attacking or solving these these global issues. So there was this really interesting local, global phenomenon from from really the beginning of the college's history, and I think that is amazing. Um, And uh, then the two of them and a group of trustees uh, found found a way to secure the land that we're sitting at right right now and the two estates that were here. Um, and they hired their first president. And uh, so Ed Kelber came in 1970. Um, and I could go on forever, I'll try and keep it short here, but Kelber was the associate dean at the Harvard School of Education he founded his own college out in Nigeria and then came here in 1970. And the greatest part of the story is he put the word out that, hey, we're looking to hire four um, faculty members um, to start this college and got 14 or 1,500 applicants. And so from that applicant pool, Steve Katona, Linda Schwartz, Bill Carpenter, and Dan Kane came. Um, and then in 1972, 50 years ago from from this September 33 students arrived on on campus and that was you know that was our birth and so that's how I understand this
0: Sure sure well um, so human ecology that must have um, kind of come as a conversation between I suppose trustees folks like Father Jim yeah. and those and the president yeah. Kelber and those first faculty members Absolutely how man. is that concept um, evolved over time yeah. um, you've, you've come into it You know, at, at uh, um, later in, in the college's evolution yeah. what's the evolution of human ecology as it's seen here at, yeah. at
1: COA yeah it's a really interesting discussion and I think again remember in that time they were saying to themselves okay now is the time for humans to save the planet mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and part of that Ed this more than anyone else Ed saw that the root of the problems that they were going through were embedded in the system of higher education there, Mm -hmm. that um, colleges had been, you know, you were learning more and more about less and less, right? And there were people were siloed, they weren't talking to each other. And in that siloing is what begot all of the problems of of the late 60s. So... I think for Ed, the key was, we need to be an interdisciplinary college. What We call it human ecology, whatever, it's gotta be interdisciplinary. It's gotta be one united faculty where the botanists speak to the painters, the painters speak to the sociologists, the sociologists speak to the lawyers. Um, and so that interdisciplinary nature was at the core of, of human ecology. The other core part, was that human beings weren't seen as apart from nature and the world around them. They were part and parcel of of the world. And I think those two things um, remain consistent, and to this day, and throughout our 50 years. But like you said, the the, the concept of human ecology, this relationship between humans and the natural, social, and and built environment has definitely evolved. And, you know, you can talk to uh, faculty member Rich Borden, who knows, you know, all of the ins and outs of the kind of intellectual history of human ecology. But from my perspective, the best way to tell it um, is through my own eyes. And when I was here as a student, um, we were all white. We all spoke English, and we were all more or less from the Mid-Atlantic and New England. And... We had a more or less consistent vision that human ecology was very like a liberal arts tradition of the environmental sciences. Um, And that was important. That worked really well at the time. But now I think our approach to human ecology is much more interesting. It's much more creative. It's much more, much broader. And we're really interested in how do we, build a society how do we do the artificing
0: of,
1: <laughs> yeah. uh, of a new world so it's not so much how do we save the world but how do we build a new world or become or a be- new world or become a new world yeah. And but I think it, it gives human beings much more agency today than, than we did 50 years ago I also believe that you know this question of where does art fit in to the college is something that I think we've wrestled with for, for 50 years. I, I, I recall the, the original um, painter, sculptor, ceramicist was Ernie McMullen when he was brought here in 1971, so before the, the, the first students arrived. They were toying with the idea that whatever Ernie did would not be credit-bearing. Um, actually the the ceramics and the painting would be a kind of a side ancillary activity, and the thinking was, "Oh my God, how could we do you know drawing and painting when the world 's on fire right and I think very quickly uh, we learned that actually art was in our understanding of aesthetics could reshape our mm-hmm. how we saw humans and and the world around us, and people like Susie Lerner from, the, from day one really did more and more of, of that work and that, that's been an evolution over 50 years where today and I see it in the future art needs to become more and more of, of who we are and of, of what we do here.
0: Mm-hmm. So that blending of art and science um, is human ecology. It,
1: it absolutely right. is but importantly it is not the arts helping make science look pretty, which is when this past decade, there's been a lot of talk about, oh, we need to blend the arts and sciences together. And unfortunately, the way that oftentimes looks is, oh yeah, let's do natural history drawing or let's do good scientific posters with better attention paid to graphics. That's that's important. But what we're really saying is that the artistic enterprise is its own way of seeing the world it's our own way of engaging the world with the world that is every bit as important as the sciences, sure. Um, so
0: yeah, that adds to performance arts, dance, theater. All of those things are interpreting what people are seeing, and therefore, oh, how can we, how can we do it better? Hundred yeah. yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Darren, how do students learn, and how do faculty teach yeah. here at College of Land? That kind of sets the college off in, in a different way from yeah. some of the other um, institutions of higher education.
1: Yeah. And again, I, I'm gonna. Keep quoting Ed Kelber because he he really put a lot of what we do in in motion, and I think one way to think about what we do is the interdisciplinary nature, yeah, but maybe even more importantly, the blending of um, learning by doing versus learning. Through reading, or so a theoretical understanding of things versus an applied understanding of things, and Bill Carpenter, uh, one of the, the founding faculty members of the college, always talked about you know in the academy uh, in the early early 70s, late late 60s, anything applied was seen as somehow less intellectually engaging. And what Ed and the early faculty members and the early students really embraced was that learning by doing things, by experimenting not just with your mind but with your hands was a really true way to learn deeply. Hmm. And that is absolutely something that is core Uh, to who we are at the College of the Atlantic. And um, I think there's the the metaphor of learning in the field. And oftentimes that's assumed to be a scientific field, like an actual field with grasses and reeds and trees. And yes, we do a lot of our understanding of biology and ecology out in the fields and the forest and in the ocean and the mountains. And not directly in the classroom. But that, that field can also apply to sociological or anthropological understandings of thought or um, politics and law. Um, but learning by doing is what we're talking about when we mean learning in the field. And it's also learning collaboratively through projects. Um, I think we all understand that if we're going to build or inhabit this this new world, um, it's really important that we do it collaboratively. Uh, It's not going to be enough for one person sitting alone in a library somewhere, but it's going, the, the new way of living is going to come about when we're all thinking about it together.
0: You're listening to Talk of the Towns in our conversation with Darren Collins, who's president of College of Atlantic, as we talk about College of Atlantic's 50th year um, here on the coast of Maine, uh, located in Bar Harbor. Uh, Darren, the other part of a student's learning is kind of setting their own course. You offer one degree in human ecology, but each student is really designing their own curriculum. It's not, it's not laid out for them.
1: Yeah, I think that is, that is one of the things... One of the other things that defines our, our student body is that students here do not want to be pigeonholed into one narrow major. Um, they oftentimes come with a diverse interest in, in many things or evolve and develop those interests here. And it's fundamentally different than the liberal arts, which... I think is a great way of of coming to know, but is often calls to mind a um, kind of dabbling in many different things. What we're trying to do in human ecology is to get students to understand the connections between things, and that's that's a different a different way of looking at things. And so, yeah, students um, they either come understanding exactly what they want to do, and spend four years building a curriculum around that, oftentimes they come thinking they want to do one thing, and that thinking evolves by working with their student peers, with staff, with other faculty members, and they design their curriculum as it evolves across their four years. Frankly, like me, some even graduate and hopefully continue to do that kind of evolution after after they graduate. But but you're right that you know one of the, the other key characteristics of a human ecology degree is that it is self-designed and it happens through courses, but it also happens in take a break, our dining hall, and through casual conversation. It happens when you're out on boats, and you're out in the field, and you're out walking, and um, it, is, it, it is not just that the learning happens here, either in the metaphorical classroom, whether that's inside or outside, but it happens throughout the entire experience, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a very, very Different quality of the of the COA. So
0: that's how students learn. How do faculty teach? That might be different um, yeah. about COA, College yeah. of Atlantic. Yeah, I think we really
1: try and get away from the idea that faculty are these sages on the stage, right? I contrast it to what might be a um, a gasoline station approach, where you come up to the tank as your brain, you, you know, you insert the, the nozzle and, and fill, um, that's definitely not what we do here, that the, the learning is much more part of a dialogue between faculty, staff, and, and students, and I say staff because staff do a lot of the teaching here as well, even though they may not be tasked specifically with, with doing that, Um, so, but faculty and staff teach um, through dialogue more than lecturing. I'd say, or uh, they, they they teach as guides more than as professors in the 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 more common um, use of the phrase.
0: They still have something to profess. <laughs> Absolutely, words, they, they no. have their 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 grounding. In various disciplines,
1: they do. Yeah, they. You know, only one of our full-time faculty members comes with a degree in human ecology. Uh, Heather Lakey, our philosopher, is a, holds her bachelor's degree from CUA. But yeah, everyone else come has come to CUA with a discipline in mind: mathematics, physics, chemistry. Um, Anthropology, but they 're really, really interested in stretching intellectually, mm-hmm. and I think that is a, a common characteristic of all of our faculty members is in stretching and part of it is logistics there are only thirty or so full time faculty and then another really important cohort of associate and, and visiting faculty, but we ask everyone to stretch and mm-hmm. the the great The greatest example of that is Steve Russell. I think Steve Russell is a ecologist here, and he was trained in amphibian uh, biology and frogs and now, um, over time, he also teaches winter ecology, which you know there 's not a lot of amphibian ecology going on during the winter or at least it 's hidden and so faculty members like Steve and like everyone, stretch and so when they're engaging with students they're not always the experts <laughs> clearly they have you know they're bringing a lot more experience to the table but the process of learning happens among faculty as well as students and and i experienced that this this past term as a faculty member in a, the human ecology core course. And I did a lot of learning as I, as I did teaching
0: one step ahead, yeah. <laughs> Just one step ahead. Yeah. Um, what makes, um, what are the qualities that make a good COA student that, you know, one who th- really thrives here? Yeah. Um, because you can imagine that some people um, don't thrive. H- how do we make that match? Okay? Yeah.
1: Yeah. We, we always say that this, this place isn't for everyone. Like, and we, you know, That's okay. Like, we don't need to be for for everyone. But the kind of student who really thrives here is one that is always passionately curious about the world around them. Um, So I think that is a fundamental characteristic of of everything. And they're curious about the the widest breadth of things. Um, But they're not just curious about it for their own sense of curiosity, they oftentimes want to apply that curiosity in a in a way to serve the world around them. So that combined sense of curiosity and wanting to serve um, very driven. Um, um, they're from all over the world. We have students from 55 countries and 45 U.S. states, uh, and that. It, within that diversity, I think those are some of the common elements, mm-hmm. um, passionate curiosity and wanting to use that sense of curiosity to, to serve the, the wider world.
0: You mentioned that um, since you were um, a student, um, the, the campus Um, Student body has changed, and that's largely because of something called the Davis Scholars Program. Yeah. That's a relatively new um, aspect to the college. Talk about that program, and that kind of um, allows you to have those students from so many different countries. Yeah.
1: I'd say there are two really important inflection points in the college's history. One, which you know, is the fire on July 25th, 19. 83, there was a terrible fire in the center of campus. It burned the bil- the, the building <laughs> to the ground, and we had to emerge from that, that fire. Um, but the second really important inflection point was in 1999, and then in the 2000 academic year, when then-President Steve Katona um, helped bring in um, the The first cohort of what are called the Davis scholars, and there is arguably no more important family to the to the college than the the Davis family. Now there are three generations of Davis um, family who have done so much to this college, and it started with Catherine Davis, who believed so much in this place and her own commitment to, to peace and the world. Um, Catherine's son Shelby and then many of you know Shelby's um, sons and, and daughters. Um, but um, the United World College came to being through Shelby, that that second second generation, um, and his his commitment to ensuring that students who participated in what's called the United World College, which is a little bit hard for Americans to understand because it is actually a a kind of high school experience uh, of their kind of junior and senior year happening all over the world in these now 18 um, high schools. Shelby wanted to ensure that students who participated in those programs had the economic financial wherewithal to come to colleges in the United States and through his incredible generosity they're able to come to uh, originally five colleges and now 99 colleges in the United States and in 2000 uh, COA was one of the original five colleges that they could come to and they were Princeton, Wellesley, they were Colby, and they were Middlebury colleges, and then College of the Atlantic, the fifth college. And so, since two thousand, we've brought um, United World College graduates um, to participate in the four-year human ecology experience here at ZOA, and um, they've been a, That that's been an really hard to describe how important that that tradition was uh, beginning in 2000. Now we're 21 years in um, we have 80 of our 350 uh, students here at COA are UWC students and they come from all over the world um, and really has has changed the character of the learning experience, not just for those students, but for everyone. Uh, the domestic students, the other international students, the staff, faculty, and trustees, it's just been... You walk into TAB now, uh, let's say at least pre-pandemic, and hear languages from all over the world, ideas from all over the world... And it's just an incredible experience when you have students from, let's say, Machias, Maine and Mozambique um, in one, one small classroom that elevates the discussion in Remarkable ways.
0: Hmm. So that's one of the evolution, uh, evolutionary pieces of evolving from a place on the, co- on the co- coast of Maine. Yeah. Thinking about the world from its vantage point. That's you right. say, oh, there's, there's 55 different vantage points. <laughs> right, okay. Now there's 350 right, vantage
1: sure. points, yeah. but from at least 55 different countries. And that's asked that our faculty, again, do the, that kind of stretching to meet those, the needs of those students as well. And um, it's really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You're tuned to Talk of the Towns, listening to a conversation that I'm having with Darren Collins, who's president of the College of the Atlantic in its 50th year. Um, college of Atlantic has also more recently perhaps been known, um, or become known as a green college. What's what's the origin of, the, of some of that thinking and why do you consider Coa greens or well, why do others <laughs> consider <laughs> yeah. Coa a green college?
1: I think you know you have to remember in uh, when those first thirty-three students came to Coa in the fall of seventy-two, we were really the only college in the country that was dedicated to understanding and improving the relationship between humans and the environment. We were really unique at that, at that time. Um, of course, now, I would bet that almost every liberal arts college in the country has a degree in environmental science, right? Uh, or environmental studies or, or whatnot. So this, that's a great thing. You know, That's a great thing that more and more people are curious about this relationship and understand just how important it is. Um, so I really think that what green (laughs) means is green is a marketing ploy. If we're, if we're totally, totally honest with ourselves, but this, this understanding and focus on the relationship between humans and the world around them is part of our DNA. It's like who we are. And, um, more recently, I think that, that, um, that adjective green has been applied to colleges who have looked at their own campus infrastructure and have wanted to lessen the footprint of that infrastructure and that's a that's a great thing i, I mean if if there were if they were not interested in the environment at all but just reduced the amount of carbon um, that their own college kicked into the atmosphere that that's a good thing there, But um, I think a green college more recently has tended to be one who has, you know, reduced carbon or carbon footprint, who has uh, been thoughtful about food and how it consumes food, who has maybe thought about its own investments of the endowment and and reshaped the investments in in the endowment. And we've been doing that. From the get-go in 1972, uh, but uh, more importantly, I think from COA's perspective, you know that concept of greenness or sustainability um, is imbued into the curriculum. It is what we do in the in the curriculum, and for because we've done both of those things, looked at our own. Um, Sustainability of our infrastructure plus the notion of sustainability in our curriculum because we do both of those things. You know, we've been recognized as the number one quote unquote green college in the country for six years now, and that's that's pretty remarkable. I mean, <laughs> it's easy colleges love to um, both look down on rankings, but hey it's i'm pretty proud of it i 'll be honest i'm i 'm really excited that we 're at top of the princeton reviews list and I think that's a good thing and um, but I think it really ties back to the fact that um, we 've been doing those two things looking at our own infrastructure um, and the curriculum for for fifty years and hey if we 're honest we 're li- you know we 're sitting Discussing today in a building built in eighteen hundred ninety five it 's not the most efficient building in the world. There are no solar panels on on the roof um, we 've got we 've got work to do in our own in our own campus infrastructure but we 've also we 're committed to engaging students as we look to improve our campus infrastructure and that 's crucial it 'd be one thing if I just waved my magic administrative wand and said, put solar panels on every south-facing roof um, in the campus. But w- what we do is we say, let's involve students in thinking about what the best way to approach our energy infrastructure would be. That's gonna take longer, but students are gonna learn more in the process. And that's, that's at the root, what. Well, what we're doing. I mean, our biggest impact on the environment is what our students do once they've left. Not while they're here. It's what they've what, mm. once they've left. And when you look at the 2,700 COA graduates, that's where our real impact lies. Um, so it's important that they get experience working with infrastructure during their four years here so that they'll have a transformational impact once they leave.
0: Mm. You've had the, um, the, you know, the good fortune of having some new buildings on campus over the last number of years, yeah. including the Center for Human Ecology, yeah. and you're about to design some new dormitories. Yeah. Students are involved in each of those uh, each of uh, design them. processes. Yeah,
1: at every step along the way. And the architecture on the, on the college is amazing <laughs> because it includes you know, really interesting historical buildings like the Turrets, 1895, Bruce Price, and then the building designed by Opal and Susie Rodriguez, the Center for Human Ecology, which is our new academic space, which is arguably maybe the most green academic building in the entire country right right now. Um, And yes, that's important but maybe more importantly are is the experience that students had in that process I I like to um, call to mind Jolie Lau who is a a graduate from 20 I'm sorry 2019 and Jolie's focus during her junior and senior year was how that building evolved Um, of course we brought you know, many other students were involved, but Jill, Jolie took it to the extreme in the same way that Callie Martinez, who is a current senior, is working on, yeah, the new dorms that uh, we're going to be building on campus, the new residences that we're breaking ground on in in May of, this, of 2022 and will be moving into in the fall of 2023. Uh, architecture is something I'm really passionate about you know, that I think is, raises all kinds of interesting
0: questions sure. and you can almost study the, the evolution of green technology on the campus because right here. Each, yeah. each time you've had a building project yeah. you've improved um, on, on what was percent. and you're retrofitting um, the older buildings, you're taking that very seriously. Yeah,
1: we want to eliminate fossil fuels on campus entirely By 2030. Um, And that's not going to require tearing down old buildings and building new, but retrofitting buildings. And I think that that's as interesting as the the new buildings. It calls to mind um, Rock Caivano passed away recently, and Rock and Ernie McMullen working on the first solar structures, you know, right here. You know, they thought that you couldn't build um, solar-efficient housing in New England. No, there wasn't enough sun, and they proved that actually, yeah, you could. Um, And so, yeah, we retrofitted buildings um, from the, the early 70s, and now, you know, we look at the Center for Human Ecology where there are 323 photovoltaic panels on that building, And that's supplying 75% of the entire energy requirement of the entire building. so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting evolution right on campus.
0: You've alluded to the, the role of philanthropy in this institution. S- say a little bit more about um, how that connection, and, and you, you started with its connection to Mount Desert Island yeah. and the special kind of c- c- um, blend of people who are yeah. here. Talk about philanthropy and College of the Abandoned.
1: Like, we, we wouldn't be who we are as a college if we were in, in any other environment in, on the planet, you know, we were founded. Like I said, part of Les Brewer's dream was to give new life to a community who had been, you know, really beaten up by the by the fire and um, and so over our 50 year history, um, the people who love this island have invested in the college, uh, from from the get-go. Um, there are amazing stories about Ed Kelber, our founding president, working with David Rockefeller Sr. in those, those early days, and David, um, Mr. Rockefeller, sorry, Mr. Rockefeller, embracing the College of the Atlantic early on. And when he embraced the College of the Atlantic early on, that gave... A sense of credibility to this institution that, you know, admittedly in the 70s, people weren't really sure what was going on here. Um, and then over time, both the year-round community and the summer community and the visitors saw that this college played a really, really important role in the health and vitality of the the place, in much the same way that Acadia National Park contributes to the special sauce of MDI, or the Jackson Laboratory, or the Jessup Library, or the MDI Biolab. So all these institutions played a really important role in the evolution of, of the island. And so the, the, the community, through philanthropy, um, supported, or I like to say invested in the college over our, our 50 year history, and without their support, honestly, there's we wouldn't have made it. There's mm-hmm. we wouldn't have survived the fire. We wouldn't have survived the early decades. Um, and um, interestingly, you know those those early philanthropists, they didn't go to College of at the Atlantic. Their kids didn't go to College of at the Atlantic. Most of their kids, and um, but they saw something special in the role again, that we played in helping this place evolve. And um, so I am, and I think we are, forever grateful. And um, this town is so special, and this island is so special. And it really, it's become a symbiotic relationship. Um, Our work is focused on the town in, in, in many ways. We're really interested and the health of Frenchman Bay and and the cl- the impact of climate change in Acadia National Park and I think the college is in, through our alumni who have remained here through our staff students and faculty who are working on issues that are important to this island uh, that's part of the symbiosis between the college and, and the place that is I won't say unique but Close to unique <laughs> among uh, relationships between town and gown. Right. It's really special.
0: And one of the ways that you've um, devised to kind of give back um, to the community some kind of a, a, an intellectual hub um, is through a summer institute. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about, very briefly, about that as a, as a contributing factor in the life of Mount Desert Island.
1: I, I will. It's really interesting because. And we've, we've always struggled with what should the role of the college be over the summer when most of our students aren't here. And the idea has been to yeah, give back to the community by being an intellectual hub, where people who are here can engage with the college and engage with ideas at the college. And it stretches back to really 1973, <laughs> There's an amazing poster that Susie Lerner um, designed and uh, that um, showed that in the summer of 1973, people like Benjamin Spock, Thomas Lovejoy, and Buckminster Fuller were here in the summer um, and were part of a speaker series. Um, In 2017, we kind of after building on that for fifty years, we really went in all all the way and created um, really through the 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 focus of the of um, trustee emeritus will Thorndike friend Judy Goldstein, Lynn Bolger, who was then um, our dean of institutional advancement and and I and others all came together and said let's let's really build something special over the summer. And so we created the Summer Institute, which is a week-long ideas festival. And is committed to one theme, and it happens in the end of July, and it's totally free to the public. People participate in person, but uh, since the pandemic, also remotely. And uh, we focused on themes like democracy, um, international relations, art, the 2020 elections, uh, food, and the coming um, focus for um, 2022 will be on the oceans and the health of our, our oceans. And we're really excited to announce that that will be done in collaboration with the National Geographic Society. Um, So for the first time, we have a a kind of co-sponsor, and what better sponsor to have than National Geographic.
0: We're speaking with Darren Collins here on Talk of the Towns um, as College of the Atlantic, which he um, is at the helm for uh, celebrating its 50th year. Um, A couple of other questions before we wrap up, Darren. What, What kind of continues to excite you about you've been here 11, 10, 11 years. What continues to excite you as president? Yeah. What drives you?
1: Um, I've, I've mentioned one thing, and that that was art. And I, I, when I first got here as president in 2011, I was really focused on listening. And I think my role as president is to take the magic, make sure the magic of the past continues, but also help the college evolve over the, you know, the com- coming decades. And I really do believe that art should be a more folk, more central focus of the, of the curriculum and of everything that we do here. Um, and so I, I'm really excited about helping, helping that. Um, I'm also really excited about building what we've called an inclusive anti-racist human ecology. Um, And what I mean by that is making sure that all students who decide to come here really feel grounded, welcome, and can thrive. And we've not always done that well, and I think it's important to reflect on our past, and really recognize that, you know, American black students have not always done well here. We've not brought many African American students here. And those who have arrived here haven't always thrived because we haven't given them what they need. And that's true with other... Um, other. Cultures and ethnicities who have, have come here. We haven't done as much as we can do with the Wabanaki people, um, and I think for the world to work to build this world that we're talking about, it can't just be white or international students who partake in that. But um, all people need need to um, really really be able to take advantage of that, and I know. That uh, I said before that we're not for everyone as an institution, but I know there are Wabanaki students out there. There are African American, Hispanic, um, Asian American. There's there are people out here, out there who would thrive here, and I'm really excited to find a way to bring them here and have them them thrive. And mm-hmm. so that's something I'm really really excited about, and. Specifically, it's about engaging in this concept of uh, the Black Atlantic. Um, I won't go into the detail of that, but really taking a new look at the Atlantic Ocean as a conduit of exchange between Africa, Europe, and the United States, and the Caribbean. Um, I'm really interested in the the future of what we can do with the four tribal groups of the, the Wabanaki here and I've been in discussion with uh, Wabanaki leaders, the Mi'kmaq, the Maliseet, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot and um, as a place-based institution I think that there's, there's a lot we can do there. I can, there's so much work to be done. So, but, what,
0: so yeah. um, that kind of um, emphasis on, on the human side of human ecology, yeah. the diversity, um that means you're pushing the curriculum it means that you're hiring you're trying to hire faculty members and staff who represent different groups and it goes to the trustees as well it does yeah, yeah it people does. have to see themselves in the people that they come to you know share an educational experience with yeah,
1: yeah. you know it, it it really does you know this this college is about mentorship right and you have to be able to see yourself in, in mentors and a great example is just recently we, we hired an amazing faculty member, Palak Taneha, to teach literature and, and she's of Indian descent, um, continental, um, and it's just amazing to see our Indian students who are here from, the, from India really start to see themselves in her presence. And we need that. And that's that's where it's not about box checking. It's not about being politically correct. It's about being correct. And so having a diverse presence of humanity here, we owe that to our students. And that's true, yes, with faculty, with staff, with the student body, and with our Trustees themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exciting, mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of work to do, but it's exciting, mm-hmm. important work.
0: So, last question: um, As you think about the kind of collective imagination of all of all of the folks who make up this this uh, institution. Um, what lies ahead? You've mentioned the the diversity um, aspects. You've mentioned the art. Um, the, the art as a as a focus. What else lies ahead in, in your imagination or imagination that you're tapping into? Oh, we
1: we may need another hour to tack <laughs> on to this, but um, yeah, I never ask that of a college press because they could go on go on forever. But I'm um, I'm I'm. I I talked about art, I talked about diversity, um, and I'm really excited by the ocean. Um, You know, we're looking out the window here in my office into the Atlantic Ocean, and I think, um, you know, we always have this very terrestrial approach to history, and I'm really interested in in looking at a more aquatic uh, approach to history and the role of our oceans and how it shaped humanity. And um, who knows? Is it a floating classroom on the Atlantic? Is it a College of the Atlantic um, touching down somewhere in the Caribbean or in Africa, uh, in Senegal? Um, You know, finding ways to... Not just bridge the Atlantic, but to, to be a part of that, that ocean and at the same time, remember that we're looking at one ocean you know we've always been taught uh, in school that, oh well, there are seven oceans, we name them all, and but really from space uh, and uh, there's one ocean, and so really thinking more about humanity's relationship to the ocean. I'm really excited for this college to play a larger role in teasing out what that means.
0: And that's not only its history, but it's also the the present time and the ocean is an engine of climate, Um, has to be part of that.
1: Hundred, uh, Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I just think we've been so focused on our terrestrial environment for the lion's share of our existence that the ocean is more like space than more like than it is like land. Mm-hmm. We, we know so little about about the ocean, and as much as i 'm interested in understanding um, the cosmos, I think we have a cosmos right here on the planet, and that is in our oceans and so understanding the human ecology of the oceans is needs to be at the core of, of who we are. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Darren, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, Ron. It's been exciting.
0: We've come to the end of the hour. Be sure and join us from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org and tune in for our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of the University of Maine Sea Grant program, also based here at College of Atlantic. Um, from, she's on from four to five on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Darren Collins, president of College of Atlantic, celebrating its 50th year. Uh, thanks um, to our underwriters, Um, Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon.